0: Go ahead and get started here. I know we're uh two minutes early, but everybody just seems so eager to get started here. That's just there's just a pregnant pause here that I just need to fill. So <laughs> so let's go ahead and get started here tonight with a word of prayer. Uh let me see here. Dave, would you open us tonight in prayer?
1: Dear Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we can gather. We- our minds and our hearts to your
0: word, and that we would be encouraged and to learn uh, new truths from your word. And uh, just be with us through this time tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Everyone has a set of notes? Okay. Well, let's go ahead and get started, do a little bit of review, try and do this each week just to sort of rehearse a few things to cement them a little bit further in the mind here, but let's let's just... A couple of those terms we uh, used last week premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Tell me the difference between those as specifically as you can.
2: Pre-millennial, well, however you say that, is um, we're going to be raptured before the actual millennium.
0: Actually, no. Right at the beginning of the millennial reign? Correct. So the second coming, okay. not the rapture. So the reference point for the millennial positions is the second coming of Christ. So premillennialism, the reign of Christ, the kingdom begins, uh, well, Christ's, cr- yes, yeah, he, he precedes the kingdom. So what's postmillennialism? Okay, so Jesus' Jesus's arrival is sort of the capstone of the development of the kingdom. There isn't a thousand-year reign per se, uh, but Jesus comes after, you know, after the church affects uh, many of the expectations of the kingdom described in the Old Testament. Once they reach something of a tipping point, uh, Christ comes and sort of completes it. Okay, So what's amillennialism then? There is no millennium, right? So the, so the kingdom, such as it is, is, is spiritualized. That is, it take, the, the church is the kingdom. And so the promises of a kingdom in the Old Testament are, are, are fulfilled in a spiritual sense in the life of the church or in the hearts of individual believers. So there is no kingdom per se. Uh, once Christ returns, the eternal state begins. Uh, not, uh, not a kingdom on earth, per se. Okay? So, that's millennial positions. What about the tribulational positions? What does pre-tribulational rapture mean? The church the church yes, yeah, so the church will be raptured before the seven-year tribulation. And uh, who, uh, of, of the millennial positions... Who would accept this idea? Premillennialism. Premillennialism. So postmillennialism and amillennialism don't recognize, by and large, a rapture of the church. There's just a single second coming of Christ. Uh, But we're going to defend here in the class two comings of Christ. An initial coming uh, uh, in which the church is uh, taken out of the way and a tribulation of seven years takes place. Before the second coming. So what's then post-tribulationalism? The church and
1: everybody's
0: raptured after, after the tribulation. Right. And, th- and they often don't use the term rapture because they, they don't want to get, like you say, don't, don't want to be confused with those crazies who are pre-tribulationalists. Uh, so uh, the second coming is is a complex. Uh, but we, the church, goes up to sort of escort uh, Christ to the earth, and so it's there is something of a, a role for the church in that they are they are they are brought up in order to escort Christ to the earth for the kingdom. But that's that's the totality of the rapture, such as it is. Okay, and then a mid-tribulational rapture suggests that the. The rapture of Jesus Christ some, takes place sometime in the middle of the uh, tribulation, uh, sometimes right in the exact middle, sometimes you know, sort of closer to the end. There's called a pre-wrath rapture. Okay, So those are some terms we're going to use throughout the course. I just want to make sure we, we were, we're on the same page. We started into a discussion then of uh, the doctrine of death. So we start with individual eschatology. Talking about the idea of death. What is the basic meaning of death? Separation. separation. separation yes. And there's three kinds of death. Uh, so what are they? Spiritual. And define that for us. Um, spiritual
1: is um, every man is born separated from God, okay. and the only
0: remedy is regeneration. Very good. Very good. So yeah, and the separation from God doesn't mean that we're just completely inert. Actually, it takes the form of a hostility towards God. So it's not as so though we're just sort of blank uh, towards God. We actually despise Him. Okay, so that's spiritual death. And you're right; the only remedy is uh, is regeneration. What other kind of death is there? Second, second, death? second death. And what's that? Uh,
1: permanent
0: separation. Yeah. So the 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 spiritual death rendered permanent. And what's the remedy for that? There isn't, there isn't one. Okay. And then the third kind of death, the easiest one.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, so what? Yeah, physical death. And and how would we how would we define that? Separation from body and spirit. S- separation of the material and immaterial. So the body from the soul or spirit. Uh, so so that is that is physical uh, death. And the solution to that is what? Jesus. Yeah, the resurrection. Right. So when Jesus comes. Uh, there will be a resurrection. Okay, so those are the three kinds of death that we are encounter. And then uh, we started to break into a discussion of physical death, what is involved. Uh, we, uh, we talked here about uh, the uh, the origin of, of, of death as being in Adam. Uh, it was not part of the original creation, but came about because of Adam's de- uh, Adam's sin. And we talked a little bit about this, uh, this question as to what does it mean that Adam surely died on the day he ate the fruit. And we suggested here that that could mean that the, uh, he died spiritually, certainly that happened. Could mean that also that the seeds of physical mortality were sown at that time. And then we also suggested that there may be something of a Hebrew idiom that, that sort of carries the sense, as surely as you eat, you surely will die and uh, perhaps uh, gives us a sense of what Adam understood uh, God to be saying when he said that he would die. So now we're caught up to where we uh, left off last time. We're in the middle of page 5. Causes of physical death, and uh, we're all aware of these. There are direct causes, natural causes, and so in the providence of God. Uh, death occurs, and I, I think we do want to make sure we recognize that, that it is within the providence of God that death occurs. It's not something that simply occurs uh, randomly. God is in control of all of that. Nonetheless, there are natural causes that are used within God's providence. In fact, the, reason, the difference between providence and miracle is that providence, in providence, God uses natural or secondary causes to effect His will, Uh, whereas in miracles he uses direct or primary causation. So most of the time when people die, it is because of natural causes or secondary causation. Deterioration, old age, natural hazards and accidents, frailty, violence, sickness, all of these are causes of uh, physical death. Uh, But as we suggested last week, those are not the ultimate, real, ultimate, really cause of death. Uh, those didn't exist in the original uh, creation, and had Adam successfully passed his test, death would have been unknown. So this idea of deterioration in old age and natural hazards, frailty, violence, sickness uh, would be would would be uh, prevented. In fact, you know this is this is remember in Psalm ninety-three. Now there's a discussion here of the kingdom, and it says God will put his, give his angels charge over you so that you won't dash your foot against a stone, okay? This is a description here of the millennial kingdom. And uh, it, this is the way it would have been had Adam not sinned. Uh, even the ordinary hazards, you, 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 the angels will prevent you from stubbing your toe, okay? This is not what we experience today, right? Okay, And so these natural causes of physical death uh, will be uh, done away with uh, because it is not these things that ultimately cause death, but rather the moral cause, we said, is sin. Now, we have to be careful here. We're not saying here that, sick, uh, that sickness and death are always tied to specific personal sins, but rather that sin stands metaphysically behind uh, all natural causes of death remember John 9 I put that in there because uh, there, was a, there was a young fella who uh, who had born blind remember mm-hmm. and the question was asked what was the question that the uh, that who, the, sin. who, who sinned yeah. Sin. yeah so so what was the specific sin that caused this blindness was it something he did or was it something his parents did while perhaps he was in the womb okay that he was born blind and the answer is what neither neither of them sin. So even though sin ultimately stands behind sin, it's not specific sins necessarily uh, that cause uh, death. So we can't just, you know, we we have to be rather cautious too when we uh, assign causes of death. And I remember back, you know, I'll remember 9-11, right? Uh, When uh, when we were trying to decide why was it that uh, this happened or why was it that Katrina hit New Orleans, and there were all kinds of speculations about people who sinned, <laughs> and I always, and I, I never got a chance to preach it, but I always wanted to preach a sermon on the, the Tower of Siloam, right, mm-hmm. uh, in in Luke, where the question was asked, why did the tower fall and forty men die, and what was Jesus' answer there? He didn't answer. Well, he didn't answer, right? He said, I, well, but he did give give some clue, right? It wasn't because they were any worse than, those people were any worse than you were, okay? Uh, so, so, so don't assign to them uh, specific sins that caused this tragedy, okay? So very good, very good. So, but the moral cause is sin. Through one man, sin entered into the world, death through sin, and so death passed to all men. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty one. in Adam all die. Okay? Uh, Psalm 90: God shortens the days of the wicked. James 1: When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. Doctor uh, Les Olittle used to call that sin's LSD trip: lust, sin, death. Right? Okay. So uh, sin is the is the is the cause of death, but I think we have to go back even further because nothing occurs in God's universe without divine orchestration. It's not as though sin was some sort of second-best kind of thing that happened, that God's sort of scrambling to accommodate. Rather, we need to cons- we need to consider that everything that occurs in our universe occurs because God has orchestrated it that way. Now. We're not talking about the doctrine of sin necessarily in this course. We actually had a class on the doctrine of man and sin already. Um, And uh, there's a lot of questions as to why is it, philosophically speaking, why is it that God allows sin and suffering and death in his universe? Um, And sometimes we get hints and clues about specifics, but we don't get a general answer. You know, we don't get a general answer why it is that God permits sin and death in his universe. Uh, we can say that God is not blameworthy for that death. <laughs> Humanity alone bears all the guilt associated with death. Nor does he regularly intersect our norm, normal space-time continuum to kill people directly. Very often in the Old Testament we see that occasionally, uh, but uh, even then, r- rather rarely. Um, but physical death lies ultimately in the hands of God. He determines when people leave this life. 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and makes alive. Job 14, man's days are determined. The number of his month is with you, God, and his limits you have set so he cannot pass. Psalm 66 tells us that he keeps us in life until such time as our days are over. And then Psalm 104, when you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. That's a fascinating psalm there. It's actually a psalm of creation. Uh, And uh, we find here that God has orchestrated everything in in his universe to perfect ends. And uh, if uh, Genesis 1 gives us sort of the how of creation, uh, Psalm one hundred and four gives us more of the why of creation, and uh, and so so we so we find here some of these these details of how he put things together so inter it, so strategically so that uh, animals can eat and people can eat without intersecting with each other and killing each other off, and and it goes through the whole thing. But then he sort of wraps it up here uh, the, the chapter by saying even death. Even death is part of the orchestrated plan of God. It's all by design. okay. And so we shouldn't think that death is somehow uh, an interloper that God couldn't control, something outside of God that he was unable to, uh, to prevent. Uh, God could have prevented all death and all sin, uh, but for inscrutable reasons, he decided that this was the best thing uh, for his creation. Okay? Questions on that? Yeah? I guess, reading the Psalms, passage. You know, yes. just as God
1: effectively shook the days of the wicked, sort of on general terms, do we see judgment against countries or areas? I mean, like, I keep thinking the U.S. is going to see some judgment um, as a whole.
0: Yeah, so the question here, for those of I, I got chided last week for not... Repeating the questions for the uh, people in, in Internet land. Uh, so, the question was: Does God literally come in and shorten people's lives, and does He do this on a grand scale, perhaps with nations? I would say yes, but I think it's always within the realm of providence here. It, I, I, I don't think we're going. We should anticipate some sort of a miraculous. Crushing of the nations. Um, the fact is, sin bears its own fruit. It, it carries in itself the seeds of death, and so it's it's one of those things that God doesn't actually have to act in some sort of an active sense to 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 hasten death. It's really a passive thing. All he needs to do is sort of remove the restraints and. Uh, Death is hastened uh, in in just about every case. So, so yes, God does do that, but um, probably more. It's probably more the sense of sometimes He keeps people in life and sometimes He doesn't. If I can, if I can put it that way.
1: I guess what I'm thinking is may or may not be because of a sin in a given region, but New Orleans gets wiped out by a yeah. uh, hurricane. I don't believe that focuses people on their mortality if our country as a nation or
0: whatever you see that. Yeah. You see people thrashing against God high handed sins. Yes. So is it possible that in New Orleans uh we've actually got God's hand of judgment specifically against the excesses that take place took place there in New Orleans. And the question is maybe yeah. but I don't know that we can make any sort of definitive statement anymore than the Tower of Siloam, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't because those 40 people were worse than their neighbors. Yeah, so there's been prominent television preachers that, right. and then
1: they get all
0: kinds of for Yeah, it, it, you, you, you wonder sometimes when you see passages like that in Luke whether, uh, you know, God put those in there on purpose. Just because those almost as exact questions are going to be asked and, and and need answers, so yeah. So how do we? How are we to think of death? Yeah, my, uh, I think. Uh, well, let's put it out here. My dad is in Pennsylvania and uh, looking for uh, uh, options here, hospice options for him. And so I'm, you know, I'm sort of thinking about this right now. How should We assess this idea of death. How should should he be assessing this idea of death as he sits there and contemplates that as he slips ever closer to that portal? Well, I think we can say with Scripture that it is an enemy. There can be no question of that. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15.26 says it is the last enemy. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Okay? And, of course, it's right in the center of this passage on the resurrection, right? And so resurrection will put an effective end uh, to death. And so it is an enemy that will be conquered. But it is also inevitable. Ecclesiastes 3, the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. All go to the same place. I don't think we're talking about heaven and hell here, but they go to, go to the dust, right? All came from dust and all return to the dust. Now, Hebrews 9 says it's appointed for men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Of course, there are, uh, if we are correct about the, uh, about the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the saints, uh, there will be a generation of believers who do not taste death, but go immediately uh, to, uh, to a resurrected state. Uh, but for all others, it is appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the judgment. So it's an enemy, but it's an inevitable one. And so there's, it, there is, I think, perhaps in that statement, uh, a, a realization that we can't stave it off forever, nor should we attempt to, uh, stave it off forever. You know, Paul does talk about the fact that uh, to to depart would be good, better would be much better, but to stay for the moment is more expedient. And so he determines he's going to stay. And I think most of us uh, want to stick around for a while uh, longer. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so, so it's it's one of those things that we that there, we should have that I think we should all live with that sort of that balance there. We want to stay here because it is more expedient. I can do more for Christ by staying. But to to, to depart is better. Better by far, he says. And so uh, we need need to have that that, that kind of uh, sense about uh, this enemy of death. Now for the unsaved, in fact we were just talking about here uh, just before... uh, uh, before class here. For the unsaved, that there's a little bit more of a grim or bleak outlook here because to depart is not far better, right? To depart is actually uh, to uh, participate in the, was the second death and uh, be there, there's, the, I say here, the loss of all good. Um, in fact, uh, the Epicurean idea, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is the rich man, the rich farmer, right? After he built all his barns. You know, in some sense, for the unbeliever, that's actually pretty sound logic because the pleasures of this life are all that they're ever going to have, right? So the pleasures of common grace are all they are going to enjoy. And so the benefits of common grace that give a modicum of pleasure in this life For the unregenerate are discontinued to death. No more common grace. No No more grace at all. No more offer of special grace. No more enjoyment of the common graces that God gives, irrespective of our status as believers or unbelievers. So it's the loss of all good for an unbeliever. It's an escape from a miserable existence, although we recognize that the miserable existence to which they are going is actually much worse. But Saul, for instance, asked his armor-bearer to kill him because it was better for him to die than to live. And he was anticipating, of course, as the king who was about to be captured on the battlefield by the enemy, that he would endure much torture um, and uh, become a laughingstock. And so his request was, please kill me. I'd rather die than go through that. Revelation 9, 6. Uh, during the days of the tribulation, in those days, men will seek death, but not find it. Okay, uh, Because the miserable existence we have here, and they're, they're, one might think that uh, uh, de- death would be a relief, but uh, of course, as soon as, they, as soon as they cross that threshold, that portal, uh, they discover that it is no better where they go. It's a precursor then also to divine judgment. Because it is appointed, as Hebrews 9 says, for men wants to die, and after this comes the judgment. Okay, And so there's this, there's this dread that should associate itself with uh, the death, um, because it's not just the loss of all that's good in this life, uh, but also a, 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 a judgment. But for the, for the saint, the believer, the regenerate man and woman... Uh, we find that the, the, uh, the, the situation is much better. Still, death is not just all butterflies and roses. okay. And we're going to start here with the Old Testament saint and then move to the New Testament saint because I do believe uh, that their experiences are somewhat different, uh, although not entirely. Okay, For the Old Testament saint, um, most generally viewed death as a gloomy... Or uncertain thing. Uh, Job 10. Job is anticipating here this, uh, this uh, fact that he is going to die. And he's not really looking forward to it. He says this, I go, I shall not return. I'll go to the land of darkness and deep shadow, a land of gloom and as darkness itself, deep shadow without order, which shines as darkness. Hebrews 2 says of the Old Testament saint, through fear of death, they were subject to slavery all their lives. And so we find this and multiple other texts uh, that the Old Testament saints do not seem to share the same effervescence that Paul does about death. And so we have to sort of try and figure out why this would be. You would think that if Paul is, is... is delighted with the prospect of dying, why weren't the Old Testament saints similarly this way? And it does seem to be a sharp line of distinction between the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint. Old Testament saints tended to be have something of a negative view of death. Uh, the New Testament saint, while having that negative undertone here, had a pred- predominantly positive view of death. Okay. So why was this the case? Well, Some reasons, perhaps, for this gloomy outlook. Suggestion is sometimes made that there was an uncertainty of final expiation. Christ hadn't died yet. And the promise of final expiation was unfulfilled. As Hebrews 11 says, these all died not having received the promise. I'm a little bit hesitant to to use this as my primary reason because I do believe that these Old Testament saints did have faith, and faith is the confidence of things not seen. And so they would have been confident that in fact Christ would come and complete uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, what was necessary for them to have eternal life. Nonetheless, we're finite. We're linear creatures. Uh, we can see the past pretty clearly, the future less so. And so I think just because of their humanity there would have been that uncertainty associated here with the fact that, you know, the, the solution to death had not yet manifested itself.
1: And didn't the scribes and the Pharisees fight each other? Some believed there was an afterlife and some didn't. Yes, so there I was. Think the majority of the people were probably I don't know.
0: Yeah, I I, I tend to think that probably the grassroots Jew probably did believe in resurrection. Uh, The Sadducees, you know, that's how you remember them, right? They are sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, But uh, the Pharisees did, and, uh, and I think they generally had the ascendancy in these debates. And so probably most people did believe in a resurrection, but there was some some question about it. What, what was it going to be like? And, and, that's, and, and, and that's the second point here. They, there just wasn't much revelation. They, they didn't have all that Paul had about the anticipation of being with Christ face-to-face. Okay? That, that, that wasn't part of the revelation they had received. And so there, they knew they were going somewhere, but they didn't know where They didn't know what the circumstances exactly were going to be. They just knew they would be cut off from the land of the living and have no intersection with the world as we know it. And and this was particularly troubling in the Old Testament because many of the promises that were assigned to the Israelite people were attached to the land. You're going to dwell in the land forever. this is an inheritance that you have forever. And so there was an anticipation that there was going to be an, an earthly reward, okay? Um, and so, 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 so I think particularly in the Old Testament, there was an expectation not so much of the new heavens, but the new earth, okay? We have a little bit more robust picture, uh, understanding that there is a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, they probably didn't have quite as much this idea that we're going to go to heaven. Okay? We, don't, we don't actually have a promise in the Old Testament that when you die, you go to heaven. Uh, uh, that's, that's a strictly New Testament promise. So They wouldn't have had that. Instead, they had promises that they would enjoy the fruits of the land forever, but they're being cut out of the land. And so perhaps that would have fed then some of this, uh, this uncertainty uh, that they had. And yet, even in all of this, there was hope amidst the gloom. Job 19 says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth, and even after my skin is destroyed, so after, after I rot in the grave, if I can put it that way, bluntly, yet from the standpoint of my flesh, I will see God with mine own eyes. I didn't even include that there, but, uh, but that he goes on to say that. So he recognizes that he's going to go into a grave, he's going to rot, and his flesh is going to all crumble around him, and he's not going to have eyes anymore. And yet, from the standpoint of my flesh, I know I shall see God. And so There was this confidence of resurrection, even in the midst of the uncertainty. I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen in the window between the the time I die and the time I see God, but I know I will someday see God from the standpoint of my flesh with mine own eyes. Okay, so he he understands that those are going to be restored to him. Psalm 1610, uh, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, uh, now, I, I recognize here in putting this here that Acts 2 says uh, that this passage was not about David per se, but about, if I can put it, the greater David, about Jesus Christ, uh, who would not be abandoned to Sheol. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if I want to say that it was not about David at all. Okay, I, I think David understood that he would not remain in Sheol because Christ would not remain in Sheol. Okay? And so there was this expectation here. Hosea 13, God makes this promise, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol, this place of the dead, the departed dead. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O Sheol, is your destruction? Okay? Okay. And the the implication is that whatever Sheol has, it's a temporary in nature. Luke 16, we have this window into this place called Sheol or Hades in the Greek. And Lazarus was there experiencing comfort in death. Although it's not clear that other Old Testament saints knew all of these details. So Lazarus... When he died, he was comforted in Abraham's bosom. I have some other passages there as well. Uh, Samuel, for instance, when he was called up by the witch at Endor, said, what? Why have you disturbed my rest? Okay, So apparently he was comfortable wherever he was and uh, didn't find it in, in retrospect. He didn't find it all that, uh, all that appealing to go back to earth. So uh, even though they didn't know going in what it was going to be like, Samuel understood that his experience in Sheol, uh, we're going to call it upper Sheol, was actually a place of comfort and rest. And he was actually not, not thrilled by being disturbed. Okay? So the Old Testament saint goes to this place called Sheol. Uh, We're going to get into that in just a little bit here uh, with the intermediate state. For now, we're just going to leave it as the Old Testament saint uh, has a view of death that was laced with a lot more uncertainty than that uh, enjoyed by the New Testament saint. Questions up till this point?
2: saw Christ, before that, you know, he denied Christ, he was kind of a chicken mm-hmm. in, in that way, but to see how bold he was after the resurrection, he, he got to see this for himself and assure that, yes, somebody beats death, you know, yes. it's the difference between the faith and actually seeing it, you know, and I just saw the transition between him, uh, where he, he ran in the crucifixion, but after all of this, he was so bold and uh, faced death, and you know, all of them seem to really take on a whole different perspective of death after that. Yeah.
0: Yes, uh, I think there is a sense in which, uh, when when our faith becomes sight, as the song goes, right, there is there is a confidence that that it accrues to us. Now, I'm not. I I, I want to be careful to say that. They had faith prior to this time, so it's, it's not as though they were faithless or lacked faith, uh, but there is, there is something to our faith-becoming sight that does, uh, to use uh, 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 J. Gresham Machen's word, um, the, uh, the miracles, and particularly the miracles of the resurrection, strengthens God's little ones. He
2: made them
0: bold. Oh, it's it's still coming. So, so right now we're just we're just we're just saying they had a. We're looking more at their outlook right now. We'll look at the place and just probably get started on it tonight.
2: Just real quick, I always wondered what that meant in Revelation nine six. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. Is that literally saying like if, you know? I'm imagining there's all this torture and they just want to get it over with. But they won't be able
0: to. Is that what that means? Right, yeah. That's how I understand uh, Revelation 9 6 for you folks out there in internet land um, to, to mean that the tribulation that they were experiencing was such that they preferred death to it. Yes. The New Testament saint, though, has a much more positive outlook towards death. Because the fear associated with death is ultimately alleviated in the death of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes ahead and quotes that passage here from Hosea 13, which we just cited here. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O Sheol, is your destruction? They're done because Christ has removed the sting. Second Timothy 1, our Savior Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Made it that our faith became sight, as it were. And so the fear of death is ultimately alleviated in Christ, but it doesn't mean that there is no temporal discomfort or uncertainty associated with death, as we well know. We don't have guidebooks or websites that detail all the many experimental details about what's going to happen when you walk through the portal to the other side. But we do have one incredible advantage that the Old Testament saint didn't have, we have Christ, and the promise that our experience is going to be just like his. He made it through. So we'll wait. Okay, and so there is, there is a great deal of relief that is associated with that. We also have clearer revelation about the intermediate state. Uh, and it, this also gives us confidence of our improved situation at death. We are confident, Paul says, and would prefer to be away from the body because what? We will be at home with the Lord. Okay, so, they, so, so Paul knew that it was not just a place of uncertainty that he was going to. He had clearer revelation that he would be with the Lord. Philippians 2, I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. Okay, so there's better revelation, more revelation uh, that would have given some comfort and confidence to the New Testament saint. Still, death is an enemy. And so it is still an enemy until it is finally abolished. And so no one, not even a Christian, ever has unreserved delight about the prospect of death. If you do, there's something wrong, right? There's something wrong. Death remains an ugly, abnormal reminder of the ravages of sin. It's attended by feelings of loss, uncertainty, broken relationships, incomplete existence, even if you go away, which is better by far, Paul says, I don't relish the idea of being a naked soul. So, not everything becomes immediately perfect when I die. He apparently has to wait for his resurrection body, and so he talks about this idea of being unclothed. Uh, so, he's, he's a naked soul. And that is an, an incomplete experience for a human. Humans are intended by God to both have both a material and immaterial aspect. It also death also remains today a divine instrument of chastening. Sometimes uh, we find, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, those who were not, I heard somebody talking about, uh, not treating the Lord's table with proper respect, not regarding the Lord's body as they ought, can result here in people being sick and weak and what? Even dead, right? Even, even sleeping, right? And so it is possible that death still can stand as an instrument of divine judgment. And if death were in no sense an enemy of humanity, chastening by death wouldn't be particularly disconcerting, but it is. We don't want to be punished by death because we instinctively recognize that death remains an enemy, but it's not a permanent thing. We will not all sleep, but rather we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So that's I, I, perhaps in, in between the lines, there is the perspective that you need to have on death. And God gives us enough information to prepare for it. And so hopefully, uh, uh, if you know, and I know we, we tend not to like to talk about death, you know, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the resolutions that. Jonathan Edwards uh, had was that to think often and regularly about my death and my own mortality. And that seems a little bit morbid. I remember when my, my son mentioned that to his, his grandmother. She was mortified by it because um, and, and, and she thought that that's weird to think about your death. But at the same time, I think as a Christian, it's a healthy thing because death is something uh, that, you know, focuses us, right? Okay, that's why that's why funerals are such good times for the uh, for the uh, for the advance of the gospel because people are brought face to face with their own mortality, because mom, dad, somebody, friend, neighbor died, and so this is this is a, this is a, f- a focusing event, and so 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 let it be for us that we consider regularly, the fact that we are mortal, and that should shape the way uh, we live our lives. Okay. Any final thoughts here on perspective on death? Yes. I have a question Mm -hmm.
1: about um, the Christian that dies. My understanding was that you were going to be with the Lord. Correct. But yet you're saying something about it's not going to be complete. Right. As good as I thought
0: it was. Or... Right. Yes. Yeah. So the question here is, uh, is Is there a difference between what the New Testament saint experiences when he dies and the resurrection? And there is a difference. Okay. So First Corinthians 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 details the fact uh, that, uh, that when we die, it will be better. We will be with Christ, but we will not be in every sense, a glorified human, okay, because we won't have a resurrection body yet, okay? There's still something to anticipate. So it's one of those things where I think we're going to be there and say, you know, this is great. Um, There's more <laughs> kind of a situation, uh, but, uh, uh, but it, there, it is an incomplete situation because uh, human, humans are Intended by God to be both material and immaterial. And if we are simply immaterial, we are to that degree incomplete. Uh, so the resurrection completes that and, and perfects uh, the way we, ought to, we will be. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get a start here on the intermediate state. And we're going to talk about this place... Uh, about which questions were just asked, about this place called Sheol. Okay, Uh, So what is this, uh, and uh, what was the experience of the unbeliever? Well, the intermediate state first is that sphere of conscious existence between physical death and the resurrection. So resurrection doesn't immediately follow death. It's associated with the arrival of Christ. So that's when we are changed. That's when we receive our resurrection body. Still, our souls don't sleep during this period. It's not as though we just have an unconscious existence until the resurrection. We apparently remain aware, sentient, even apparently capable of observations, and and you'd say, well how? Because we don't have any sensory organs. Um, And yet we apparently do have this capacity, retain this capacity, even though we are in a spiritual Uh, Or immaterial state Um, and so it becomes a something of a question you know God of course sees God of course hears he has no body Um, and so we might ask well how and the answer is I have no idea (laughs) except to say that that's what the scriptures say and and, you know we may be using anthropomorphic terms he is a he is somehow aware uh, even though technically he doesn't see because he has no eyes uh, but uh, he, So we're probably talking metaphorical terms. And yet observation takes place even in this immaterial state. Yes?
2: Uh, so I was wondering Christ rose physically and was assumed physically into heaven so the place where he is you know, uh, can't be a purely spiritual place. So is it possible that we end up some kind of temporary body, the way like when angels came to, to visit, they had some kind of temporary
0: physical body. okay. So the question is, is it possible that we have a temporary body? We're gonna talk about that. Um, I'm, I'm going to say I don't think so, although um, Dr. McCune did. So I, I have to I am gonna be very cautious in, in, in that. But I don't think I, I see in scripture uh, basis for that in at least in any kind of normative sense. And the follow-up
1: to that
2: was, what does it mean to be with somebody if, if, there's, if you don't have a
0: physical Yeah, so how can someone be with someone if you're, there, there's no physical existence? I think we still have to say that we're localized. It's, it's not as though we become omnipresent when we die. So even spirits are local. created spirits are localized. So... Um, you know, you know, for instance, you know, there, there's a legion of, demons that were inhabiting one person, uh, so apparently they don't take up very much space. <laughs> At the same time, they aren't; they're just not. They don't disperse everywhere; they're still localized. And so, in some sense, we as spiritual, disembodied beings, are going to be with. Disembodied God. And 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 so there is some sort of intersection interaction that will take place. But again, as as humans, we just don't really we're not really able to understand or describe the details of that you know that that relationship. Mm-hmm. My, my son asked me about that once, and
1: I told him I said my theory on. It very similar to angels, and that humans are naturally physical creatures who do not normally have a non-body, like a, kind of like an angelic body, that's not their right. normal state, and angels are spiritual beings who do not usually have a physical body, but like Correct. he said, they did at the Sodom and Gomorrah thing, right. so every now and then they come out of what feels normal to them in order to have... Specific mission, and for us, will be a period of time where we'll probably, like angels, the angels in heaven can see, right? They can interact with things, so probably whatever way they do that is probably the
0: way we'll do that. Yeah, but yeah, be as we'll be pure spirit beings like the angels, and the question still comes: Is it possible we'll be able to have some sort of physical form, occasionally, or semi-permanently? I, I guess I'm not prepared to say absolutely no, but I don't know that I find good evidence that we are. And, and again, we have that statement here of Paul that he he's going to be a naked soul. Okay, and so that that seems to be the normative experience, uh, the the ordinary experience. Yes, sir.
2: On the subject of angels, <laughs> they've been. Uh, Certain
0: people in the Bible that were escorted by angels. Is this something that could happen, or is it just we really don't know? Or we well, be escorted? So we're so we're yeah, so we're 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 moving a little bit afield here, but the question here about angels: are we escorted by angels? Do we have guardian angels? Um, and uh, we do find some hints and clues here along the way. We do know that. Children have angels interceding for them. Uh, The idea of guardian angels comes from that, although it's probably not quite right because they are interceding before God. So they're not they're not protecting. They're not guarding the the children. They're interceding for the children before God. So uh, so so is it is do do angels do anything today? Yeah, will there be some sort of an escorting? that Takes place. They do seem to attend people at death. Is it possible? We'll get you know. We'll get it. There's been a lot of speculation over the years. Nothing concrete. I
2: feel better to have an
0: escort. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. And and that is the uh, we'll we'll go through that valley of the shadow of death and and it's going With to be escort. it's going to be and 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 walking through that portal has got to. I mean I'm not. None of us have been there yet, but it's got to be a pretty terrifying thought. But I, I have to assume that once you get through that portal, you'll be good. Yeah, and so what? What form uh, the uh, the consolation will take is less than clear. But I think
2: no professional diaries.
1: that they can ask a, a dead one to
0: intercede for them. Okay. So the question is, is there any sense in which a, a dead person can somehow be an advocate for you uh, in the intermediate state? And I guess probably the one clear answer I would say in, in Ecclesiastes is the the statement here, and I don't have the I don't have chapter and verse here, uh, but Ecclesiastes talks about the fact that when you go, you have no knowledge of the earth. There is no knowledge there. Okay, and so so there's, it, it does not seem possible that a person who dies is going to have a continued knowledge of the things that are going on earth, much less be able to then intercede for those who have who have remained behind. Um, Again, we don't have a lot of data, but we do have that verse, and it seems to be a fairly significant one. Okay, so the intermediate state, we'll start with the Old Testament, and, uh, and we'll use this term, Sheol. I've already introduced it. It's a term that's used 65 times in the Old Testament. In the King James, it's exactly halfway, the grave, halfway uh, hell, okay, and uh, there's also a couple of uh, uses, uh, translations, pit and death. Uh, the New American Standard, the ESV, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible don't, uh, don't translate the word. They simply use the word Sheol, okay, in, in most cases. Uh, probably the best translation is the place of the dead, which is the favored translation of the New Living Translation. So that, that's if I were to pick one, I think that's probably the, the best. You know, it's the place of the dead. Hades is the Greek translation of this term, and so it's used in the New Testament 11 times. Uh, the Septuagint um, typically uses this word Hades uh, to translate uh, Sheol in the Old Testament. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used in Jesus' day. Uh, so 61 of the 65 times the word Sheol appears in the Old Testament, the translators, the Septuagint translator, used this word Hades. Okay, and so we're very confident that they're the same place, Hades and Sheol. So what what is this place like? Well, let's at least say what it's not before we uh, call it a night here. It's not death. Death and Sheol are related. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire, right? Death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. They're not the same thing. It's probably best to think of Sheol as the destination of souls and death as the event that brings the soul to Sheol. So death is that doorway that brings uh, the, uh, the individual to this place of the dead. Okay? Uh, Psalm 49, as sheep they are appointed for Sheol, and death is their shepherd. Okay, so that perhaps gives a, something of a picturesque metaphor here uh, that death is the shepherd that brings the soul to Sheol. It's not the grave either, so it's not the place where bodies go. Okay, so we, we should not think of Sheol or Hades as the physical grave. Uh, both Greek and Hebrew have distinct words uh, for the grave. Uh, Jacob requested to be buried in a grave, a kaber, in Canaan. Lazarus' body was put into a grave for four days, and so this was, a, a, this was not to be confused with Sheol. In Scripture, the grave is technically the destination of the material remains of a person. Sheol and Hades, the destination of the immaterial part of the person. Okay? And so, for instance, in Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon is thrust down to Sheol, but his body is described as having no tomb. Okay, so his body didn't have a grave, and yet he continued on to Sheol. Uh, Similarly, in Psalm 141, while one's bones are scattered at the mouth of Sheol, the soul is that which actually enters into Sheol. Okay? We should not confuse Sheol either with the final place of judgment, uh, because we find that Sheol gives up its dead. Sheol and Hades bring, uh, give up their dead at the last judgment, and all the inhabitants of this of lower Sheol, this place of the wicked dead, are cast into the lake of fire, so if we can... Uh, use a, perhaps a, 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 a parallel here. Sheol is the temporary place. Think of it as jail. The lake of fire is the permanent place. Think of it as prison, if I can make a poor comparison there. Okay, so, uh, so the question that sometimes comes up then, okay, so what is hell? You know, which, which, which one is hell? And, you know, it's one of those, those funny things that I tend not to use the word hell, not because it's a bad word, but because it's, because it's actually something of a confusing term. Uh, a lot of people use the word hell, and they use it interchangeably for the place of, the, the temporary place and the permanent place, and so typically when I'm talking about the the, these two locations, I will talk about Sheol-Hades as the temporary place and the lake of fire is the permanent place. I tend not to use hell because of the confusion that is associated with it. Um, but uh, hopefully that, that makes some sense. That may, do you get that? And one can never return from Sheol to participate in the land of the living. Here's the place. Okay, here's, here's the verses I was looking for uh, when, I, when your question came up here. No man can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol. You can't get out. The inhabitants of Sheol cannot return to the land of the living. Ordinarily, Samuel did, Moses did, and and Elijah did, but uh, that was a a rarer situation. There. Second Samuel. Now he has died. Remember, this is the situation where David lost his son uh, after his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, the, The baby dies. And so he says here, now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Nope. I will go to him, but he won't return to me. And I, I do think there was probably a, a tone of resignation here in, the, in that verse here. I, he, death is a one-way street. Once, once, once the baby has gone on, there's no point praying anymore for him. He's, he's gone. Okay? He can't come back. I can, I can follow him. And I eventually will, but, uh, but uh, no one comes back. Ecclesiastes 9, here's the verse I was looking for. It's a place without knowledge or wisdom with reference to the world of the living. Okay, So uh, those who are in Sheol don't know what's happening on earth. Okay. Still, it is a place controlled by God. As Psalm 139 says, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Uh, And Sheol is naked before God. Okay, so uh, so this is this is the the, it's not death, it's not the grave, but rather it's the place of the departed dead. Um, Now we're we're ending here, in perhaps at an awkward spot, but maybe it'll create some uh, anticipation for next week. Uh, But uh, we're going to talk about the fact uh, that there perhaps was something of a reorganization. Of the of the uh, nether world, if I can put it that way, uh, with the with the resurrection of Christ, and so uh, we're going to see. Uh, while in the Old Testament, apparently even believing s- saints who died went to this place Sheol, they were transferred at the resurrection of Christ uh, to uh, their uh, uh, the, the the better uh, the better uh, better place, uh, which. Uh, which saints today enjoy as well. So we'll, we'll talk about that next time and uh, have a little diagram on the board here to, to sort of see if we can't uh, figure out what we mean by it. Okay? But that's what we'll do next time. Any questions as we wrap this section up? Yes? Do believers have an idea of what's happening after? I don't know that we have any reason to think that they do. Um, we we know that the Old Testament saint and Sheol did not. Um, whether that changes for New Testament saints, I, it, uh, we'd have no reason to. I, I, I don't have any biblical reason to think that we do. It says that
2: there'll be no weeping or sadness or
0: sorrow if they knew what was happening down here. At right. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, the, the, there is the statement that we won't have weeping or s- sorrow. But that's that's in the that's in the that's in the eternal state, so so it doesn't necessarily say anything about the intermediate state. So the, no, so so it, uh, I don't know. I, I think you you've got a point there. I think it would be rather discouraging for uh, for the, the departed saints to, to to look back in on on the earth. Uh, but I don't know that 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 passage necessarily informs informs that.
2: Mm-hmm. But we get a resurrected body, but those who are separated from Christ, they will just remain as you without a body. Is
0: that we'll talk about that. It, that's coming up. So, that's, it's it's actually a interesting question that there's a lot of disagreement on. So we'll 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 put out the options. Yes, sir.
2: Um, both the Old Testament believers and non-believers, both classes of individuals, went to Sheol as a waiting place. Is there any distinction in Scripture between where in Sheol they were? Is it literally the same place, or they, was there separation
0: within Sheol? We'll talk about that next week. Yep, that's that's all part of the discussion next week. So, oh, good. Okay. Thanks for coming, and uh, we'll see you uh, next week. Probably finish up our section here on individual eschatology and start in then on the, uh, the, our uh, discussion of world eschatology. Take care.